Book of James is what we've been studying. And we're 15, there it is, 15 verses in. It's written by God. He used James to write it, 45 to 50 AD, to the Diaspora. And we're talking about faith in action, or the concept that when you depend upon something, it produces a work within the thing that you depend upon. Um, that's one of the evidences, and the first of four um, major kind of groups of evidences that James deals with when he's trying to identify what true spirituality is and give us the understanding of how it works and what we need to do in order to be what he calls truly spiritual. And the first one he deals with is that faith in action concept. Two terms to know, we deal with these heavily tonight, um, no, mostly number one versus number two, but positionally or positional is a reference to one's position or relationship to something else. And then experiential or experientially a reference to one's experience in relationship to something else. So we'll deal with that first one a lot tonight. Uh, in fact, we're going to deal with the doctrine of positional truth, uh, as it's called. And uh, it, it'll kind of give us a little more meaning behind that word and what it means for us. Just a reminder that pisteos is the word from which we get faith, and it means literally a complete dependency, which is based on response. Uh, you decide and evaluate through some sort of evaluation process what you will depend upon, what you choose to depend upon. Uh, you are requiring to do some sort of work, that object to do some sort of work for you, such as a chair when you sit on it, you require the chair to hold you up. Um, so that faith concept is not this random spiritualized thing that, oh, just have faith, it'll happen. Yes, when you depend upon something, things happen, but you have to know what you're depending upon, and you have to make a choice to depend upon something. Human viewpoint is sight-based, and it is a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this human world system. This world works in ways that I don't understand, uh, and I'm sure last week we had plenty of examples of that uh, over in Connecticut. Well, I do not understand what would possess someone to do that kind of a thing. However, it is clear that lack of divine viewpoint was a part of that process. Divine viewpoint is faith-based in nature. In other words, in order to operate from the divine viewpoint, you must be operating on dependency upon uh, spiritual truth that God has taught and God has set forth in his world system. God's way of, of working in the world is different than man's. God's world system is different than man's. And right now, the human world system is being run by Satan and company. All right, so a review of the process of testation, which is kind of that blend of testing and temptation that we've um, been dealing with, the harmony of that same word for tempt and the same word for test or trial in first chapter of James. And the process of te testation so far, if we have, as we have studied it, is summarized thusly. Number one, the individual is dragged to bait, which has been laid in appeal to his specific lust pattern, whether it's lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or pride of life. That individual then chooses to either accept the bait or reject it. He already desires it because it's designed to be appealing to his sin nature. <clears throat> if he rejects the bait, the test has been successfully overcome and the work of Satan Company has been momentarily thwarted. They will try again, and that's for the reason for the momentarily part. He remains in fellowship with God and under the control and tutelage of the Holy Spirit. That's the experiential part which we'll deal with next time we meet. Um, C. Having utilized dependency upon doctrine found in God's word, he produces a good work, one which has natural inherent value, which is pertaining to righteousness and is a part of his future stewardship evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ uh, after the rapture and during the, the first part of the tribulation in heaven. Now, if he accepts the bait that is laid for him, 
His lust takes him and the bait and makes them one together. This process of cohabitation produces a oneness with them, and the production of that oneness is sin through their lust pattern, the, which is the object that has empowered them, which has been empowered, excuse me, by their volitional capability. So the, the person chooses to allow sin to take them and make them, or to allow lust to, to take him and make him one with the uh, bait that has been baited on the trap. You guys following that? Butchered it. It's all right. Words are there. C. Having failed to implement Bible doctrine through dependency upon scriptural truths, the individual produces a bad work of unrighteousness, which will be burned up as wood hay and stubble at the future evaluation of his stewardship responsibilities on earth. Judgment seat of Christ. Again, the same judgment, different result for different uh, works, whether bad or good. Okay, now if... <clears throat> oh, this is that duplicate slide. Let's look at D. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm not sure where we lost this one, but anyway. C, the lust, lust is the agent which brings sin into existence through conception. D, sin is, a, is in a completed state at the moment of conception. And then E, sin being in a completed state produces spiritual death. Okay, so we had last, week, last time we were here, we talked about the act of conception and the moment of conception. The act of conception may be drawn out, but the instant the act of conception starts, that's the moment of conception. So whatever act it is that makes you one with your whatever item you're lusting for, um, that moment may be drawn out. That process of you being made one with that is drawn out. But the incident starts, you are actually made one from the get-go. Um, sin being in a complete state produces spiritual death. This is where we left off, and it caused a problem for us in uh, some senses. And we're going to try and harmonize some things tonight. So... This is parenthetical study number two, Harmony of Sin's Consequence. And the teaching of James in chapter 1, verse 15, leads us to the question, does the believer who has chosen to accept, or to be taken by his lust to the bait on the trap, and thus sin, and this thus produce spiritual death in him, does that believer again need to be saved by Christ if he again is spiritually dead? That's the question we are faced with at the end of last session's notes. And to answer this question, we first must understand the doctrine of positional truth, which we will do through a harmony of scripture, which speaks on the matter. So again, we're dealing with a believer who is accepted and given into his lust for an object, who's been taken by his lust for that object to it, made one with it, and that object, the cohabitation of that individual with his the object he lusted for produced sin within him and sin when it was finished produced death and again that was thanatos which references references spiritual death the lack of having spiritual life so doctrine of positional truth will clear this up for us um, in order to get to the doctrinal of doctrine of positional truth though we need a brief review on the anatomy of humanity um, <clears throat> now the reason we need this is because in understanding sin's con <coughs> excuse me, consequence, no, I don't. It's okay. <coughs> we need to understand it. In, in, <laughs> we will wobble. We need to understand in part the doctrine of the anatomy of humanity, because what it does is it sets up the process from the beginning. So we're going way back. I mean, as far back as we can go, basically in humanity's history, to identify what sin does within a person. We already taught on this in. Uh, 
I think it's part nine of Trials and Tribulations. Um, so it's verse eight if you want to go back and look at the study a little more in depth. I've, I've taken a lot of that study, but it's not slide for slide. So if you want more, um, either ask a question tonight or we'll go ahead and let you go look at it on your own. <coughs> Thank you. Alright. Yeah. This brought to you by Kirkland Signature Water. Under the agency of Robin Marie Bell. Okay. So, the doctrine of the anatomy of humanity begins in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Then God, which is Elohim, the Trinity, said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Verse 26 begins with, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule. Humanity as the image and likeness of Elohim includes being a spiritual being, possessing volition, the ability to make choices, and being granted governorship over creation. Now, some will argue that the governorship over creation is not a part of humanity. It's a responsibility given to humanity by God, which is a true statement. But also within humanity is the governorship, the essence of governorship over, over all of creation. We see it. I mean, even if apart from that responsibility given and being commanded by God um, to Adam and Eve, Man rules the animals. That's how it works. It's part of us. It's part of who we are. Uh, you can't put us on the bottom of the food chain, if you will. So it is a responsibility that God has given to us, uh, and specifically gave to Adam and Eve, but it's also a part of our creation, a part of uh, the way God designed us. Genesis 2-7. We're skipping ahead now from the actual creative act out of nothing to the forming of man. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. A little interesting tidbit here. See how Lord is in all caps? That usually references Jesus, or the second uh, member of the Godhead. The interesting thing is that God the Father is credited as the one who's created the world, but God the Son is the one who has actually put it all together, and the Holy Spirit as the agency. The Trinity was working together, if you will, um, being three in one and all, how all that works, um, to make the earth and the different roles produce these different things. So scripture identifies all that clearly. Just anytime you see Lord in all caps like that, um, it's usually a reference to God the Son in the Old Testament specifically. And it's an interplay between Eloah, Elohim, and uh, Yahweh. <clears throat> so Yahweh is usually a reference to the second of the Godhead, God the Son. <clears throat> that has nothing to do with tonight's study. It's just, it's there. It's a good thing to know. Um, up it's up there with the whole, if it's written in italics, it's not in the original languages. Uh, doesn't mean it's not valid, it just means it's not actually literal. <clears throat> yeah, no charge again. <clears throat> okay, so from Genesis 2-7, we learn that there are three parts which comprise the whole of man. The first part is a reference to physical bodily creation of humanity. Then the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground. The word formed means to manufacture from existing materials. Previously, in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, that word meant to create from nothing. 
Okay, so we have this man that's created from nothing, and man and woman created from nothing, and then formed out of the dust of the ground in Genesis 2, 7. <clears throat> so the forming of man from the dust of the ground refers to the physical body. That's part one of the anatomy of huma humanity. That one's pretty easy to see in the English. Um, then we get this second and third part coming up. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The phrase breath of life is literally breath of lives in the Hebrew text. It is dual and identifies two different breaths, um, or two, one breath that produces two lives. <clears throat> you have two formats of life which God gives to man. One is soul life, and two is spirit life. Soul life and spirit life are parts two and three of the anatomy of humanity. So now we have almost a three-in-one kind of concept, if you will. While I don't place a lot of credence to that notion, it is interesting to note that God created man with three parts in the beginning. And it, it, usually threes have this concept of reflection of God or the Trinity um, or this divine quality to them. So how interesting is it? We get that through harmony of other scripture elsewhere, which we're not going to go into tonight. If you go back to the one we did on 10 weeks ago, or it's verse 8, you should see a little more of that, about that evidence. So all that breath of life tells us is that there's two, yeah, two breaths, or two lives. Yeah, it's two, not, not more than one. Yeah. Okay. Because so with Hebrew, you actually have a, a three categories of number. You've got singular, dual, and, and plural. Plural is more than two. It's actually a really neat thing to see. Yeah. So, um, a lot of the more modern helps are saying this is plural, but when you look at it, it's actually a dual. So, it, it's kind of an interesting concept. Yeah. Elohim actually is. Man, I'm not going to get into that. We'll leave it alone. <laughs> it's still part of that harmony of everything. What is it? It's a. <laughs> It's a singular plural word. The word itself is singular. There's one Elohim. But the word within itself is plural. So it's kind of... I don't know how to explain it grammatically other than it's, it's kind of like a square can be a rectangle, but a rectangle can't be a square. You got me? I may have mixed it up either way. So, <laughs> so Elohim has multiple parts to it. But there's one Elohim. And in that Elohim, there's three things that make that one thing. That's the, that's the concept. That's, it's a plural word that is singular. It's a singular word that's plural in nature. <clears throat> Which is why when you look it up on the helps or in the text or something, if you take Hebrew or something at some point, it'll say it's singular. But you got to do some word studies to find out it's actually plural. But more free stuff. Okay. <clears throat> Part of the reason, uh, Emily, to answer your question a little better too, with soul life and spirit life, is we know that the spirit has to be reborn according to John chapter 3 um, and Jesus. And then we know that the soul of man, the suke versus the um, spirit pneuma, is there's definitely an interchange between them. So that I said that it's through harmony. That's a little bit of the harmonies through there, but it's all throughout Scripture. You, you know there's, there's three different things. something in that that indicated that word. No. <clears throat> no, it's a harmony of Scripture. Okay, now the soul life format refers to the soulful essence of man. The human soul is that which relates or corresponds to human phenomena. Um, when Jesus spoke in parables, he was using human concepts to attempt to portray spiritual doctrines or spiritual concepts. He had to convert them to human concepts for people who didn't have a spirit. Why didn't they have a spirit? We're going to get there because of the fall of man. 
<clears throat> so when when we really deal with unbelievers, we probably shouldn't be hitting them with straight up doctrine. We need to get them to the point where they can actually understand it first, which means they need to be born again. And once we get them there, then we can they can actually have the ability to understand what God's saying. So soul life format refers to human things. Um, interestingly enough, the one thing that humans do understand very well is this concept of love. They may not know the depth of God's love or that kind of thing, but they do understand unconditional love on a human level, uh, as well as the slave concept of being slaves to sin and slaves to righteousness, uh, as well as, uh, what's the third one I want to hit? Oh, the concept that you've done some, something wrong in someone's eyes and you need to re make restora restitution for that. All these concepts are human. And we teach them in, in any secular, any atheistic, any type of society, you will have this concept that you've done something wrong and you need to take care of it. Those are all human concepts and those are all human things that God uh, uses to kind of intersperse his communication through us, or through to us. Scripture identifies unbelievers as soulful because they lack a human spirit, like calls them natural uh, men, and are only able to understand soulful things. Romans chapter, uh, I believe it's 8, uh, if you read the first 15 verses of that chapter, you get this interplay between soul and spirit, uh, the natural man, the fleshly, and fleshly is a reference to someone who's operating according to their soul in their body. Now, the term spirit life format refers to spirit, the spiritual essence of man, and it corresponds and relates to spiritual phenomena. Makes sense. You've got the soul, which deals with human stuff. You've got the spirit, which deals with God stuff, if you will, or spiritual things. In order to understand spiritual phenomena, humans must have the human spirit or the spirit life format in order to perceive, understand, and interact with things pertaining to the spiritual world. Scripture identifies unbelievers as not able to understand the spiritual things of God because they lack a spirit. And Romans 8, again, is part of that, and then you've got 1 Corinthians has a portion of that as well. Okay, so going back to Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, and man became a living being. The key part with that little, and man became a living being, is that it happened at the culmination of these three things. This is what we call the trichotomy. Tri being three, cotomy being made up of three, basically. Trichotomy means to be made up of three parts, or cotomized with three things. So trichotomy of humanity refers to the creation of man with a body, with a soul, and with a spirit. Yeah. The church as the body of Christ. Okay. That's one of the mysteries of the doctrines of God. Um, the, part of the reason the Jews didn't understand it was because they didn't have a spirit. Um, the roles of male and female within society and within family structure, all that stuff on a human level is clearly discriminative, I guess. But on a divine level when you understand what it means and it doesn't deal with the equality or that kind of thing that it just means there's different responsibilities when you understand that concept so there's there's your other one that'd be a big one <clears throat> okay so the doctrine of the trichotomy of humanity says that humanity is comprised of three parts which are the physical body the soul life format and the spirit life format now that word formats put in there because this is a part of the framework if you will that God has he's set man up with a body a physical body with a soul life format and with a spirit life format. It took the breath of God to actually fill the formats and create living life. So this is how God created humanity. 
originally in the Garden of Eden, and we know then that man sinned. Genesis 2, 15-17, God gave them one command. Well, he gave them lots of commands, but he said, gave them one, do not, or thou shalt not. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from, the, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Anyone notice they didn't really die yet? Well, no, they have now, but... <laughs> They're, they're dead now, you know. It's only been here something years, but whatever. <laughs> so, <clears throat> another little free bit of information here. If you notice, remember we said capital letters, Lord? There is great evidence in Scripture that Adam and Eve are receiving Bible doctrine daily with the Son of God teaching them in the garden um, through some of these interchanges. We have other passages that kind of indicate a little more clear than that, but you see the Son, the the Son of God, Jesus, taking this role, um, I guess I really shouldn't call him Jesus, I call him the Son of God, I guess, taking this role of being the one who is working right there with humanity and teaching them and training them and, and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of an interesting thing um, if, you, if you pay attention to it. Okay, so the command was, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in that day that you eat from it, you will surely die. The phrase, you will surely die, from verse 17 and is in the original languages, literally, Dying, you shall die. It's actually a whole phrase. It's not one word that you get that from. It's dying, you shall die. <clears throat> the phrase dying, you shall die identifies two types of death. One is an instantaneous death. The second is a future death. The tense use of the original Hebrew indicates an immediate instant death, which precedes a future coming death. Part of the reason we're doing this review is because I think this is one of the best studies we can ever do. It's just phenomenal what God's Word has, has written and taught us about who God designed us to be. So the phrase, dying you shall die, identifies two types of death. Instant death and future death. Rendering that in Genesis 2.17, we should get something like, for in the day that you eat from it, dying instantaneously, you will die in the future. The instant death refers to the spirit life format. We did some harmony with that uh, on the actual study of the anatomy of humanity, if you want to go back and look at that. The future death refers to the separation of the physical body and the soul life format, which we know as physical death. When the body and the soul separate, we have physical death. So we can clearly see, and it's pretty self-evident, that the body and the soul is the spirit or the physical death part, which leaves only out the spirit life format if you want to go that route. But there's other evidence in Scripture as well. Such as Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden, the lack of relationship between humanity, and then this concept that humanity is now dichotomous at birth, uh, which goes into the whole reason for the virgin birth. Jesus needed to be trichotomous, having a spirit in order to uh, be our Messiah. So, as a result of the fall of humanity and the death of the spirit life format in Adam and Eve, the genetic makeup of humanity became dichotomous, or made of two parts, lacking the spirit life format. Man is then in need of the rebirthing of the spirit life format, and that's cross-reference John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes and has a fireside chat with Jesus. So the spirit life format died instantly. Man was separated instantly from God. And the soul life format and the physical body, they would separate for future physical death. Any questions? Okay. I heard a breath. I think we talked about this before, but I understand it more now because I didn't talk about this before. So would you say animals 
just physical. They don't have a soul. Like, like the way I understood it before was soul is what makes us different than animals. And the spirit is what makes us different than non-Christians. So all humans have a body and a soul, and animals just have a body and Christians have a spirit. That's the way I kind of understood it before. Is that, is that accurate? It's arguable on all accounts. Animals think, so they have to have some sort of mind, which means, and the mind is part of the soul. And they also have personalities, which means that it's part of the soul too. But whether it's a human soul kind of concept, where it includes like our emotion, all our free will, all that stuff, or whether it's just they react to everything and it's pre-programmed, I don't think that's the case though. It's a biological There's some sort of thinking thought process going on. Right. Um, and you can see it. I mean, we got two cats. We got a little ninja baby kitten that's annoying his mama to death and the mama's you know trying to be nice about things and walk away and then this other ninja kitten just keeps coming back and the mom finally just starts growling out and stuff i mean you see the interaction between this and there's a thought process and communication going on and but then all animals don't have that to the same degree so and, and i don't think <laughs> and i don't think humans are the model for animals either but but i I don't see the God that we have being God not giving animals a chance to choose. Not in the sense of salvation, but in the sense of just living and that kind of stuff. But you see God not giving them a chance? No, I don't see I don't see a God who is loving and just not giving animals also that free will kind of concept. For what what purpose and to what end, I don't know. What about but, the whole like animals well, anim animals are under the curse, too. Right. And we don't know. It doesn't say much about how that influenced. There's some speculation saying that they be all became, well, some became meat eaters, and they weren't meat eaters before that because right. there wasn't death before that. But there's some other indications that says there was death before that and you know, that kind of stuff. So it, a lot of interesting late-night sessions we could do with that kind of stuff. But I, I don't think that, I mean, if they have a soul, Conceivably, you could give them the gospel message. Yeah. So whether God's given them the ability to, to be, I don't know. I, this is the design of humanity. God very well could have a different design for animals, and I would probably say he does just from the way he's designed things so uniquely. I'm thinking, as to Jim's question, that he wasn't so much asking about animals' capacity to have a soul, but as if what you're, what you're defining as a soul, like say they're maybe they have something else, but say what you're defining as a soul, oh, okay. kind of that difference between like a human who has capacity. I would say we all have different souls. Like a, a lion doesn't have the same type of soul as a man. It might have some. Some sort of a soul, yeah. So. Uh, that thinking reasoning process. So it, it's like a, a soul for a lion. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that... Does that is that am I on track like for what you're asking? Yeah, it's similar similar thing, but not necessarily the same thing. I don't know if yeah. I'm answering a question or just making yeah. stuff up. I haven't, but I looked it up after you talked about last time. It's kinda out there and he, he says it, but I'd like to hear what you think of it. Like so if you have if you're like really bored sometimes, read it and then tell me what you think because it's interesting, even if it's not. It's called Transposition, and it's a really interesting essay. To the other thing is that animals don't seem to have a need for salvation. I mean, there's no judgment 
for animals. They're under a curse, just like the earth. But there's no... The Bible doesn't say, you know, save, save the dogs, forget the cats, you know? It's, they're going to hell anyway. But it just... There's no emphasis on animals at all in that sense. So, so in that sense of... Yeah. I mean... So how God, like, what... What cotomy, if you let me use that term, animals are created with? I don't know. I don't think scripture really identifies it. I don't think we're the template for all their creation, because they came first. But, oh, interesting. So, yeah, it, it's an interesting topic. I mean, it's, I would think probably the way animals are created, since the Bible's not clear on it, it's probably not that important for us to understand it, or God would have made it more clear for us. But it's interesting to think about. I, yeah. I'm curious even. I wouldn't, like, go and preach to my dogs, but, I mean, I might, but I'm not going to try and get them saved. <laughs> they do listen pretty well, but <laughs> they had to have some help with the shot callers for that, so. <clears throat> All right. So because of the fall of humanity, humans are born dichotomous instead of trichotomous, as was the original design. We need a spiritual rebirth then. Because of the fallen state in which we are born, we are unable to relate to God in a personal direct relationship. We are unable to understand the things of God. We are unable to understand his will for us. Um, such death and separation is the consequence of sin. That's clearly understood in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. Now notice the lowercase letters on Lord because we're in New Testament Greek, so it doesn't carry over in that sense. Death is from thanatos, which refers to spiritual death, such as a logical compensation for missing the mark of God's standard. <clears throat> Pretty simple. So spiritual death is the result of sin. It's actually the compensation for sin and the free gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Alright, so here's where we get to starting to answer the questions that we had of does a believer who has sinned now need to accept Christ again. The doctrine of positional truth hinges upon the understanding that man is born in a position of spiritual death. His position then is contrary to God's, which is in spiritual life. Because of his position in spiritual death, man needs to be moved from spiritual death to spiritual life in order to relate with God. This is accomplished through the Messiah concept prescribed by God and fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. <clears throat> Positional, I'll remind you, is a reference to one's position in relationship to something else. In this case, we are talking about man's position in relationship to Christ, in relationship to God, um, and God's spiritual life. So man's position in relationship to God's spiritual life is in spiritual death. Man's position um, in his dichotomous state is outside of Christ. And in spiritual death, man is positionally apart from God. The law of non-contradiction, which isn't something that's humanly des designed, it is actually it goes back all the way to Lucifer. Um, it would indicate that man cannot, at simultaneous moments, be in spiritual death and in spiritual life. Okay, you can't have both. You can't be spiritually dead and spiritually alive at the same time. It doesn't work. Therefore, God sent a Messiah to earth in the form of Jesus of Nazareth for the purpose of moving man from spiritual death into spiritual life. Any questions? Good. Here it comes. <clears throat> through this process, we have a couple of verses that, or in order to carry out this process, we have a couple of verses that highlight the main points. Jesus in John 12, 32 says, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. 
How is Jesus lifted up from the earth? By being lifted up on the cross. And cross-reference verse 33 of John chapter 12, and also John 3, 14 and 15, which talks about uh, as Moses lifted the serpent up on the staff, rod, I guess you you'll call it, um, so must the Son of Man be list, lifted up. This That little phrase, draw all into myself, just because we kind of dealt with this when we were in verse 14, and the sin, they, their lust pattern draws you. It's this, from the same word. They're from the same root. Um, it means to drag by force. And it's in, in this sense, it's dragging you by force to the point of having to deal with something. Just like your lust pattern is dragging you the, to, by force to, the, to whether you're going to go for that object on the trap or not, it's the same thing going on here. You're drawn to this point of having to make a decision, and you're drawn by force. So it, that's why we use the term dragged to carry this through. So Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will drag or draw all men to myself. <clears throat> that's one of the verses that leads us to uh, how positional truth is carried out. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Uh, the bold is mine in there. You'll see that, and uh, hopefully you'll keep seeing that for a while. Man must deal with his position of spiritual death at the cross. Only believing in the Messiah will restore an individual to spiritual life in Christ. So prior to deciding what you're going to do about the cross, you are in spiritual death. If you decide to reject the work of Christ on the cross, you remain in spiritual death. If you choose to accept the work of Christ on the cross, you are then changed. John 5.24 identifies the change that takes place. Jesus again talking says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Again, positional terms. Being taken out of a position of death and placed into a position of life. Excuse me. Until man believes in Jesus Christ as his Savior, he is positionally dead spiritually. Once an individual believes in Christ as their Savior, he moves out of death and into life, which is in Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the land comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is life, and He is, and that life exists within him. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we actually possess his eternal life. Question? Too late. This, this is not experiential. This is kind of this is a, a positional concept. And that'll make sense as we get going. The the point is that every man will have to deal. Every person will have to deal with the cross. At least once. Well, there will be a final once in which after we pass from this earth, or the rapture happens, or you, as you go through the different eschatological so things. It's not necessarily talking about on earth. It's not talking about in your lifetime on earth. Oh. You have to deal with it by the end of your life. If you don't, you got problems. Okay. It's not going to be like, okay, here's your shot. What are you going to do about it? Nope, you're done. That's all you get. No. You're dragged to the point of having to deal with the cross and Jesus' work on the cross. Now, the reason that I mention it, it's kind of, it's got that like authority over it, is that if you, the word helkuo means to drag by force. So there's, it, there's some sort of resistance applied, okay, whether it's active or passive. You're pulling against it or whether you're just letting it pull you. You have weight to it. The, the dragging by force 
is to get you to a point of having to deal with something. What, what this verse is teaching is that the cross is going to, be, have to be, is going to have to be dealt with by all humanity at some point or another. Okay, now, the, the positional point in which we actually end up dealing with the cross is after we're off this earth. When we get to heaven and allegedly, from what we can see through scripture, we are asked, yeah, well, if we get the great white throne judgment, the sentence is passed. But the, the concept is that when we pass from this earth, that we are asked, what did you do with the work of Christ? Or we have the mark of Christ within us. Or um, uh, the Holy Spirit, that kind of concept. So, I'm butchering this terribly. Okay, that makes sense. What happens if you don't? You go to hell. Well, like, obviously, but, like, I guess I just originally understood it as, like, sometime on earth. Sometime during your time on earth, you'll have to make a decision. Yeah. But Jesus, by being lifted up, it's not, and I, if I'm lifted up from earth and 2,000 years later, pull Robin in, it's no, by being lifted up, he has dragged all men to him, to that point of dealing with him on the cross. In the sense that all men, all, all humans will have to, will have to choose what to do with the cross. Yeah, and by that they have no excuse. Okay. Any questions off of that question? Okay. Okay, so when a man believes in Jesus, when an individual believes in Jesus as the Christ, he is changed from being dead spiritually to alive spiritually, and this is accomplished by being placed into Christ. Here you go, Damon. Positional truth diagram. This summarizes what we've looked at so far about positional truth. Now, we will use this again later without the animations, but we have the cross and Jesus saying, if I am lifted up, I will drag all men to me, John 12, 32. John 3, 15 says, uh, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's the concept. You got, we had the verse two, two slides ago. Um, so the all men are dragged to the point of the cross. <laughs> that little blue guy's kind of fun. It was 30 minutes in the making. God's much better at making people than I am, I'm telling you. <laughs> Not that any of you guys were questioning, you know. But So the person is at the cross. Whoever believes is taken out of death and placed into life. Um, i not sure if you can see that. That says Christ and life, which underneath is zoase, it's spiritual life. It's actually referencing the highest quality or type of life humanity can have, and that is why we ascribe spiritual life to it. So in... In Jesus being lifted up, he's forcing humanity to deal with the cross. Whoever chooses to believe at some point during their lifetime, whether it was 300 years ago or 3,000 years from now, if they choose to believe, they'll be taken out of death and placed into Christ, into life. That's John 5, 24. If they are in Christ, they are gathered out in him and identified as holy and blameless. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is all one, all one sentence in according uh, Greek. And it says that God has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places where? In Christ. And if you read that, um, the, read through verse 14 of Jan- Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see this phrase, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, in love. And it's all these concepts of this location in which all the blessing, this bless- these blessings are given. Um, that word gathered us out is the word that we have elect from, and it means to, to separate based upon criteria. So the criteria that its separation has occurred as those who believe are separated out from those who do not believe, from those out of death, 
they are placed into life, which is in Christ. All those who are in Christ are saved. All those outside of Christ are not. So the criteria is what have you done with the personal work of Jesus Christ as, as the Savior? Do you believe or do you not believe? If you believe and you're in Christ, you are holy and blameless and you are sealed in him, Ephesians 1.13, uh, sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. And then this last one, 1 Peter 2.9, uh, is you get the phrase, a people for his own possession. That word possession literally means a dot encompassed by a circle. Uh, it's perusion, and the concept that, that the dot is encompassed by the circle, which is why we've got a circle up there, and we'll change that to a dot and a circle at some point in our studies, but that circle is owning the dot. That's the diagram that they used to use to identify ownership was uh, if an object was owned, you'd put a circle around it. It's encompassed, it's circled, it's owned. Uh, so we have Christ, and he is the sphere, if you will, um, and the believer is the dot inside Christ. So you are in Christ, you are possessed, you are actually owned by him. So in 1 Peter 2.9, uh, you have Peter talking to Jews, specifically saying you are a royal priest, uh, or you are... He tells them that they were a race that was chosen by God, that they were a royal priesthood, and that all those things that they were now have meaning because they can be in Christ. Outside of Christ, those have, that has no meaning. But by doing this, he actually includes church-age believers in that concept. So this is not just a verse to Israel. This is a verse to all those who are in Christ. You are a people for his own possession. Okay? Hey, go ahead. But you are a chosen race, a royal And Peter's dealing with the Jews, and then he goes in, like, next verse, it says, I'm like the Gentiles or whatever. From when you were walking amongst the Gentiles or something like that, right? For once you were not the people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Keep going. But, I mean, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may become, they may, because of your good deeds. That's how we know one is talking to Jews, specifically. But he's identifying that, hey, Jews and Gentiles were separate. You've got this characteristic. You were a chosen people. You were a royal priesthood, and you were designed for God. Now you are to be his possession. How are you his possession? By being in Christ. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, and that we have evidence of in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 28. I wrote that down somewhere. It's in Galatians, I think, I know it's verse 28 of one of the chapters, so you got six chapters to read tonight. Go home and figure it out. I love doing that. Make people read their Bibles. Is that the same diagram you used at Youth Group? I have used this at Youth Group before, yeah. It's a little more specific version of it. Same, same concepts, I just hit a little more in depth some of the things we're talking about tonight. And you will recommend. Mm -hmm. Okay, so again, our process, Jesus was lifted up. Whoever believes, taken out of death, placed into life in Christ, they're gathered out in him, made holy and blameless, um, seated in him, or sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, and then a people for God's own possession. All right, now once, th this is now where we get to start answering that question. As understand that we are in Christ. Now we understand a little bit more about how this question will be answered. Do you have a question? You look like you have a question.
No? Okay. <clears throat> All right, so once the believer is in Christ, after he's believed, he is different in a number of ways. One of those differences, according to 1 John 3, 9, is that the believer cannot and does not sin. Oh, wait a second. We just had in James, if any man is a new creature, he is in Christ. Why am I going to 2 Corinthians? I don't know. We just had in James, James teaching us that if we give in to our lusts, that we're going to produce sin in our life and spiritual death. And now we have in 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. How can we not sin? And then James says that we're supposed to not give in to our lust because that will produce sin. So either none of us are born of God because we still sin. I mean, I know y'all, y'all sin. And then, me too, we all sin. So, apparently. <laughs> Judging <laughs> eyes! <laughs> Um, and, and then even in 1 John, same writer, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. So we've got sin that we do. But here it says that no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Anyone have any ideas why uh, I don't like this verse? Give us the answer time. And I'm filled up. Next week? No, just kidding. You got it. You've been here before. All right. 1 John 3, 9 provides excellent insight into the believer's position in Christ, especially in regards to the believer in sin. Okay, again, we're trying to answer that question. Do you need to accept Christ again if you've sinned? However, at first glance, it appears to greatly contradict with the reality of the Christian's experience, meaning we walk on this earth and we sin. So how is that verse and our reality on earth accurate? How do they harmonize together? This is easy to understand when we understand the concept of positional truth versus experiential truth. Positional talks about our position, right? Experiential talks about our experiences, our walk, if you will. Um, and our walk with God is the term that we usually use there. Our time on earth and our moments, how we carry them out. The doctrine of positional truth teaches explicitly of man's position, not his experience, but of his position, whether in spiritual death or spiritual life. So when you deal with positional truth or positional sanctification, if that term comes up, you're talking about being saved by being in Christ, and your position is in Christ. The believer's position in Christ is that focus of 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God has been translated from the Greek phrase pos u gegen nemenos, how's that for a word, ektu theu. Literally rendered, the phrase reads, all the ones born of God. You say it. You can do it. I know you can. Pasu gegen nemanos ek tu theu. Gegen nemanos. Gegen nemanos. All right. Literally rendered, the phrase reads, all the ones born of God. This is where humanly I have a major problem with the New American Standard Translation. All right. This verse specifically, I have a major problem with it. The translators didn't do a very good job, in my opinion. Uh, they have their reasons. And we'll just let them have those reasons, just like I've got my reasons why I don't like it. Okay? Doesn't mean they're worthless people. I'm just saying. I disagree. I mean, no one who is born of God doesn't even come close to all the ones born of God. They're going for the meaning, and that's why they did it. They weren't doing literal here, word for word. They were going for the meaning of the, of the verse. This, is, again, is a reference to those who have been spiritually born. Um, the, no one who is born of God, all the ones born of God, will be spiritually born. Uh, John 3, 3 through 7. Uh, is that understand that those who are saved are those who are born of God? <clears throat> According to 1 John 3, 9, all the bo ones born of God do not practice sin. 
Okay, now that word practice is the misleading part. Uh, the reason, and I actually have this from a, a first person account that he actually asked the translators this. Uh, he actually asked <coughs> the translators why they translated the word into practice here. Because it doesn't mean practice in the original language. And they said it's because it's got the present tense. And they were trying to harmonize the present tense with reality. Just like we were trying to harmonize how a believer who commits sin isn't actually a sinner. Or that, that whole harmony we're trying to figure out right now. So because of the present tense and the understanding of man's experience, they were trying to harmonize how that worked together when they were translating the scripture. Okay, Scripture translation number one, never harmonize human stuff with spiritual stuff. Always do spiritual stuff. No, never mind how many spiritual stuff with human stuff. You always go the other way. Okay, spiritual defines human. Human doesn't define spiritual. Okay, they did a great job in many other places. Okay, so I'm not bashing on them. I'm just saying this is not good. Okay, their translation came from the Greek phrase hamartion hupoiai. It's the noun form. Hamartion is the noun form of hamartano, which is the verb that means to miss the mark, to sin. Okay, again, sin means the, to miss the mark of the standard. We had a nice diagram with the guy shooting the arrow. Remember that? All right. Because it's the noun form, it references the object of missing the mark or that abstract concept of, oh, you've missed the mark. You've sinned. It's sin. Okay, what is that? Oh, that's sin. It's an object versus an action. Okay. Now, hamartion is coupled with hupoiai, which means to perform, or poiai means to perform an act which is credited to the actor. Okay. So if Jamin goes to build a house, and he actually pulls out the hammer, pulls out the nails, pulls out the wood, and builds the house. We would say, Jamin built the house. But if I say, hey, I want a house built, I'm going to hire Jamin to build it, and I'm going to tell everyone else I built it. Who built the house? Well, I hired it to be built. And so in some sense, I built the house. But Jamin's the one that actually gets the credit for building the house, right? Okay, that's that concept. Is that historically or on record, the person who did the act is recorded as having accomplishment. It's charged, it's credited to them. It inherently contains, boy, I inherently contains the concept that someone performs an act and is credited or blamed for having accomplished that act. It has no, in no way, shape, or form the concept of practicing an act within it. If God had wanted to use that, he could have, and I arguably say would have, used proso. Not to say that God has to do this because I like it. I'm just saying. He did it in other places. He, I'm guessing, would be consistent, right? Proso is that word that means to practice. And you can almost see it in there. Procto. Proso. Practice. Pro. Practice. It's there. I'm telling you. It means to practice. Uh, it's that concept of doing something over and over and over again. Okay? So that you either get good at it, which doesn't make any sense with sin anyway, or that you can handle it better. Okay? Um, like training of that concept. Okay. So, who poi? Uh, what? All right, fine. When poi is preceded by who, by who, it is negated. That means that you put a no or a not in front of it. So you got perform an action, negate that, not perform an action. Okay. So if I use that term negated, that's what I'm referring to. The literal rendering of who poi should be or who poi should be not perform an act which is credited to the actor. Okay. So the act which those born of God are not credited with is the act of sin. Yeah, we're going to put this together and you're going to have furrowed brows a little bit more and then we'll all wrap it up nicely, okay? What? Furrowed brows. Oh. Yeah. Okay, this is what it looks like. <laughs> Literally, it's all the ones born out of the God miss the mark, not perform an act which is credited to them. See? Told you, more furrowed brows. 
Think of it like this in English. It would be all the ones born of God sin do not. Okay, that's it's kind of like this. All these guys dot dot don't do this. Okay, all the ones born of God miss the mark, not perform an action which is credited to them. Or a better translation for the meaning, not literal word for word, but for the meaning. All the ones born out of God are not credited with performing the act of missing the mark. Okay, it's not recorded as them being the ones that have accomplished it. John gives the reason for this when he writes, because his seed abides in him, the one that's performing the act, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Okay, this, this is totally the imputation of sin concept. Okay, we do the deed, he gets the punishment. Okay, that's what it comes down to. He gets recorded as having done, having done it. The phrase, he cannot sin, literally means does not have the natural inherent power to miss the mark. Oh. If you are a believer, you do not have the natural inherent power to miss the mark. You can do anything. Because you can't, you don't have the natural inherent power to miss the mark. Well, at least be recorded as having missed the mark. Okay. So, again, the reason for this is because the believer is, what, born of God. It's all because of that. Because we're born of God, we have his seed in us. Because we have his seed in us, we can't, do not have the natural inherent power to sin. We are righteous to the core in that sense, positionally. Okay, This is where we get starting to separate positional from experiential. Those who are born of God are positionally sinless. They cannot sin because they are born of God, positionally. We still do things that God says don't do. But the interesting thing is that when God deals with sin, it's pre-salvation. Once we're saved, it becomes a good or a bad work. Something that has natural inherent value or is meaningful, or something that has no natural inherent value or is meaningless. In other words, something that's beneficial to God's world system or not beneficial to God's world system. So when you accept Christ, it changes from that was a sin to that's a bad work. That's not beneficial. That doesn't work for God's world system. It's a total change. You can see it when you read your Bible. Believers, when they're talking about sin, it's going to be referenced to positional almost every single time. Uh, in all other cases, it will be referring to this concept of good or bad works. Okay, so those who are born of God are positionally sinless. They cannot sin because they are born of God. Question? I'm not sure if I Maybe I'm dense, but I really don't see how that's a bad translation. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I, I, you I, don't I, have I, to agree with me. Well... <laughs> <coughs> Because the practice I'm not part. I'm saying that I, I disagree with you. That I, I, you can I just say don't that. see how it, it it seems like it's fairly reasonable translation. The the only reason I have a problem with it is because of the practice part. Because we understand practice in English totally different than how poio poio is actually meaning. But in the context of the passage, it seems like practice sin. That means maybe I. I'm, I think you have the. You tell me what the verse means, and I read it in English. I think when I read it, that's the same conclusion I came to when you explained it the other way. Maybe it's just. And most people wouldn't, because uh, I guess I shouldn't say most. A lot of people don't. A lot of people will say that this means that um, if you do an act that is identified as sinful or missing the mark of God, that you are not saved. So it, beca it becomes a major theological issue for a lot of people. Right. And so by putting practice in, it almost seems like it counters that by saying practice sin as in living in sin, positionally in sin. Like, to me, and this is, again, I, I'm not, yeah, by putting practice in, it seems to make it a better translation than a, a worse you, translation. You think you practice sin as a practice of your life every single day? 
The reason that I highly frown upon in practice, one is because it's not literal. Two is because it has led to a lot of people thinking that, oh, well, they're, they're sinning in their life. They're living with something before they're married. They're stealing. They're lying. They must not be born of God. Well, they're change, they're, they're, the mix in this comes with positional with experience. So positionally, we don't practice sin. Because positionally, we can't. Because we can't do sin. So positionally, it's an okay translation if you understand positional truth. Which I'm assuming you do, which is why you didn't have a problem. But most people don't understand that concept of positional truth. They haven't been taught that. I guess they can understand it just a lot. It doesn't get taught much, and it's really frustrating. So, what would be a better translation if people would read it and get the concept of that positional truth out of it? I would go as literal as I possibly could of perform. Okay. Yeah. But the problem, yeah. The, The problem with literal translations. Is because it requires work to understand them in English, uh, which is why we have so many different translations. I mean, you got the New American Standard, you got New International Version, New International Reader's Version. I mean, they're they're trying to make it where people can understand it, but we miss a lot of what was literally said. Now, does the meaning get across in most cases? Oftentimes, but there's a definite pattern and approach that God has used in the original languages that he remains consistent with the same terminology over and over again, the same concepts over and over again, that you you kind of miss them otherwise. So you can like practice that, okay? No, I'm just trying to think how, how you would better word that communicated to somebody who doesn't understand the Greek language. Like, like if I were translating it for a general audience, how would I try to convey that? And, and that's the problem with translating. So, Worry that they, they would, you know, yeah, care, you know? and and that's the that's the problem with translating. If you ever get a chance to do any translation, I or, or translating process, or even witness it, like with a, a group in school or something, do it, because you'll face the same dilemma. I mean, I, I face the same dilemma every time I open it, and I have a tendency to want to be as literal as possible because I believe we take the Bible literally, grammatically, historically, and I I think we can in teaching explain the concepts to the point that it's comprehended. Now obviously for most people and this isn't there's no pride or anything meant by this but for most people this kind of study wouldn't be acceptable and I think if you guys looked at it it takes time to kind of develop this understanding of these concepts and the way the Greeks working with things. It it takes practice, it takes repetition to, to kind of get used to I don't want to say this style of teaching, but to a literal translation. Just like if you read a book from the 1800s, the first chapter, you're going to be like, okay, this is all weird language, right? But if you start understanding the prose and the, the syntax and the different words and the meanings and stuff, you start understanding it a little more. Same concept. I would prefer to be on the far literal side of things or the, the more literal side of things than personally to be on the more allegorical kind of side of things. But if I was doing a Bible for the mass public, I would have a major problem, which is why any Bible I would ever do would never sell. Okay, it would be like Todd's Bible, and I'd name it that because it would be I'd, the only one that would have it. All right. So, um, Everybody else would read it. would understand the, well, the syntax. So and that's what you weren't saying. That's what that's what different giftings are for too. Right. I mean, if you were just given this. And if we were just given this without any explanation, 
we got a problem. But God's gifted people in certain skills to do to do teachings on different levels so that the church is taught and grows. And that's just kind of the beauty of it. Um, so, positionally, to get back to our study. Oh, he lost his train of thought. <laughs> no, I was trying to see if she was going to the kitchen and going to the other room. So, positionally, the other. we cannot sin because we're born of God. The other room, yeah. Don't mention the other room. You can't say what it is. Like heaven or the other place. The other place. Sorry. All right. So because of the believer's position in Christ, the believer is positionally sanctified by God. Okay. Positional sanctification is that placing of righteousness because of the believer's position in Christ. In other words, the person who is in Christ, the believer in Christ, is righteous in God's eyes. This means that God has declared the believer righteous because of his position in Christ. Again, it's in Christ. That all, that's the only place that this happens. Ephesians 1, 3-14 gives a thorough but not exhaustive summary of those things which belong to the believer who is in Christ. I want to focus just on um, those two words, holy and blameless, real quickly. Um, the Apostle Paul makes known that God has declared all those in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. Now, I should give you the whole verse because it says that he's gathered us out in Christ and carries through to be holy and blameless. The, part of the reason we're in Christ is so that we can be holy and blameless. If we're identified outside of Christ, we have no chance of being holy and blameless. We have to be in Christ, who was holy, to be holy and blameless. Holy is from agios, and it refers to the believer's position of being separated from spiritual death. It is uh, the word which means, or identifies the separation of something which possesses divine qualities. Okay? The verb identifies a separation for a calling or for a purpose. Um, you've got the concept of two different pots. One's a cauldron that's made for whatever to come in, and then you've got one clay pot that's designed for something specific. That clay pot would be holy, or its characteristics would be set apart from the main grouping, you know, or that main cauldron. Um, so the, the, the noun form of this, the hagios, is identifying a separation of something which has a quality that's been given to it by God, specifically. Okay, that quality that we have been given is this purity, this righteousness, and that's because we're in Christ. So we're separated from unrighteousness, we're separated from death, spiritual death, and placed in spiritual life in Christ, and possessing now divine quality of righteousness. That's that concept of holy. It's a very tough word to define um, because of all the different things that kind of come with it. But it includes that possession of divine quality. Blameless refers, this is a well-translated word, okay, refers to the believer's state of not being able to be blamed for his transgressions. Again, this is the result of his position in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, you will be blamed for your transgressions. The, they'll be paid for on the cross, but it won't be recorded as, as Christ having committed them. It'll be recorded as you having committed them. So if an individual is in Christ, he is not able to be blamed for his transgressions. If he is out of Christ, he is. And that's, that's the key thing with positional truth, is that it all occurs in Christ. The blessings that we have... Um, all that stuff starts by being in Christ. Now this harmonizes with 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is also our Ginnamai theme verse, do, 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 which says, He made him... So was I. I figured I'd share. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In order for us to become the righteousness of God, it has to be in Christ. Okay. We did a study on that verse if you want. It. It's our first one on, on our notes page. <clears throat> we went word for word through there and identified the same concept we're talking about right now is that positionally we are righteous in, in Christ 
because God has made us righteous in him. Okay, so according to 1 John 3, 9, the believer does not and cannot sin because he is in Christ. So I'm going to go back. Question. Would I true positionally and experience? What's that? that? Is that true positionally and experience? This verse is specifically talking about uh, positional. But we can tie in experiential through here. Uh, and we, we actually mentioned that when we studied it, is that in order for us to actually become experientially righteous or grow spiritually, um, we have to be in Christ, operating in Christ. Because you can't become spiritually mature if you're not saved. <laughs> it doesn't happen. So you've got to be in Christ, and then that process occurs also. Yeah. You have to be positionally in Christ, and then you have the opportunity for experiential growth. Okay. So according to 1 John 3, 9, the believer does not and cannot sin because he is in Christ, the one to whom humanity's sin has been imputed. Now, key thing here, all of humanity's sin is charged to or is, is been paid for, atoned for. Every single one, whether believer or unbeliever. But it's not all charged to Christ. He's paid the price for it all. When someone believes on him as their Savior, that's when it's recorded as him being charged. Okay? So the sad part with this is that if you're an unbeliever, the penalty for your sin has already been paid. It's just not been transferred from you. So you end up being judged for it because you are not allowing Christ to be judged for it. So when the believer sins experientially, that sin is not charged to him, but to Christ in accordance with the Calvary Compact of 30 AD, that concept that all sin is paid for at the cross. I'm calling it the Calvary Compact of 30 AD. It's, it's a new term. I, I, dare I say I resurrected it? But <laughs> I used it like 10 years ago, and I haven't really used it since. But I liked it, and I haven't had like a chance to use it. Uh, but the Calvary Compact of 30 AD is kind of this concept that Long before the foundations of the earth, the Godhead said, this is how we will restore humanity. And then in 30 AD, that compact was signed and sealed and delivered. Done deal. So the plan was carried out, and it was set in place. Okay. Okay, so positionally when we sin, as believers, it's charged to Christ. It's already been actually charged to Christ on the cross. But we sin during our time on earth, experientially. So in our experiential sin, it's charged to Christ because of our position in Christ. You following that? Okay. The doctrine of positional truth identifies, number one, any individual who believes on Jesus Christ is positionally in him. Number two, because of the believer's position in Christ, he is holy and blameless before God. That's again, it's Ephesians 1, Three and four. Through his position in Christ, the believer's present-day act of sin has already been attributed to Christ on the cross in 30 AD. Again, when the believer accepts Christ as Savior, any sin that he committed, past, present, or future, is now charged to Christ. It just goes right on the credit card, right on the account. Because of the Calvary Compact of 30 AD, the believer does not have the ability to suffer spiritual death having been born of God. Because positionally we are in Christ, we do not suffer spiritual death again. We actually have the very life that Christ has had from eternity past. Because of the doctrine of positional truth, the believer can have confidence in his once and for all eternal salvation. Salvation which is provided and maintained because of the imputation of the individual's sin upon Christ in 30 AD. All of humanity's sin was atoned for upon the cross. However, only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation are placed into Christ. 
Only those in Christ are saved because their sins have been imputed to Christ and they are not charged as the ones having performed the sin, but Christ has been charged already. The doctrine of positional truth identifies what be that believers are once saved, always saved, which is a truth known as eternal security. Through understanding the believer's position in Christ, we have assurance that our sin does not remove us from the spiritual life which God has sacrificed His Son to provide. However, our sin does accomplish something in our experience or our relationship with God. To be continued at another session. We won't fry your brains with that tonight. What was the last thing you said right before? I was just reading the last thing. Um, I just need to finish the last thing. Yeah. Okay. So because our sins charged to Christ, after we're saved, nothing we can do can cause spiritual death. Because that spiritual death is in Christ. And actually, if you read uh, Romans chapter 6, the first part of the chapter, it talks about us being identified and buried with Christ. And in his death, we died. And in his life, we lived. So our death, even if it was charged to us, it would be attributed to his death. And it would be identified with his death because we've been baptized into him, which is the whole going down, is the identification of death. And then coming up is identification of life. Read Romans chapter 6. It'll make a lot more sense. Wait, say that again? Read Romans chapter 6. It'll make a lot more sense. <laughs> oh, <okay>. oh, I <laughs> got that. <laughs> Yeah, we can do it. Yeah, bring your family. Um, well, at least you get to come over on Wednesday. 
I'll bring it. 